So hey, everybody. Welcome to Skype a Scientist Live. We are talking about biodiversity, particularly on islands, uh, with Christine Parent. And so um, as you're all probably aware, Skype a Scientist is a nonprofit organization that makes science accessible to as many people as humanly possible, and we're totally donor supported. And so if you can help support our mission, um, we're producing a lot of content during these quarantine times. And so uh, you can do that at skypeascientist.com or uh, patreon.com slash skypeascientist or uh, paypal.me slash Skype a scientist. Um, our, we're on 501c3 nonprofit, so it's all tax deductible um, if that's the kind of thing you're into. And with that, I think that's all the information we have um, for now. So, Christine, uh, I'll uh, hand it over to you. Sounds good. Hello. Um, so, I'm a biologist by training. I'm a faculty in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Idaho in Moscow, in Idaho. And um, while well, I do research in biodiversity and really like my main interest is uh, in, on the formation and the dynamics of biological diversity in space and time. So I'm interested how, in how species show up, how they might disappear via extinction, why do we find a lot of species in certain areas, why are certain areas species poor? And in my lab and the people that work in my research group, we're mostly interested in uh, modeling and thinking about these ideas in simpler systems and that those are uh, island systems that we've been focusing on. Well, um, so what is different between the biodiversity that you might find on an island situation compared to what you find in like a huge continent? Well, so this is one of the reason actually we like to work on islands is because islands by definition are isolated, right? And so because they are isolated, uh, not every species can reach them. And so that results in a community of organisms that is uh, what we call depauperate, which means basically that is poorer than what you would find in, in a comparative comparatively similar area, the same size and, and so on, same latitude, but on the mainland. So on the mainland, if you go uh, and look at the same size of mass, land mass, than you have on the island, you'll have way more species there than what you have on island systems. And so that makes uh, for a very um, good system for biologists because everything is simpler and it's uh, also naturally simplified. And so it's not us, artificially doing experiments. Uh, it's like a natural experiment basically that's going on. And so by looking at the species that are there, we can get some information about um, what is happening and what is maintaining biodiversity in a very simple context and then try to draw conclusions that would be applicable to what we see uh, on the continent. Awesome. Um, so what are some of the most biodiverse areas in the world? Oh, that's a good question. So there's, um, there's different trends. Uh, so the most common uh, trend that we hear of is uh, that there is this huge uh, latitudinal gradient in diversity. So as you get closer to the equator, uh, typically you have an increase in biodiversity, both like in terms of species number, but also in terms of diversity of forms, of function, what the organisms are actually doing. And there's various hypotheses that have been proposed to explain this very general gradient in diversity. 
um, and it's still highly debated. It's surprising because it's a, a pattern that's been highlighted and um, basically, um, I guess, found ages ago, hundred over a hundred years ago, that people have uh, realized that great that this gradient exists. But people are still debating as to why that is. And so one of the main uh, hypotheses is that there's more energy because there's more solar energy around the equator, and therefore there's more potential for organisms to share all that energy. And so that leads to more species diversity there. Cool. Um, so we have a question coming in. How does climate change impact biodiversity, especially on islands? Yeah, so this is definitely something that we are very concerned about. Uh, island systems are, uh, they're unique in, in many ways. So like, as I mentioned earlier, there's less species, but the species that are found there typically are also very unique because uh, they have been isolated and they have had like a lot of time to evolve on their own, separated from their ancestor for a long time. So you have really fun looking and unique and like endemic species there. But by nature as well, islands are also very susceptible to change because uh, the population sizes are small. Uh, usually they're restricted, like they can't go off the island. And uh, also like if you have climate change, uh, what you'll have is you'll have a really high impact on island system. A piece of the island system that I work with, what we see is change in weather patterns, and so on. And so that's the species don't have anywhere to go, right? Like on the continent, if it gets warmer, they can move up north a bit and that changed our distribution ranges. But on islands, like there's very, yeah, there's nowhere else to go. So they're more susceptible uh, to changes because of that, for sure. Totally. Um, Amadeo, age six, would like to know, uh, does Madagascar have a lot of biodiversity? Mm-hmm. Yes, Madagascar is a really fun island. And I've never visited it, but uh, from all um, that we know about the, the species that are found there, uh, it's, it's just crazy. It would blow your mind if you go there. Um, there is a lot of, I don't know, like, I, I, like um, I don't have like specific examples, but like the weird, some of the weirdest species are found on Madagascar. There's the lemurs. And there's also these weird species that use different types of tools and have evolved different adaptation to uh, exploit their habitat and get, or like eat, basically find their resources um, in a way that no, you'd find nowhere else on earth. Um, so yeah, it's definitely on, on my bucket list uh, to go and visit because uh, there's a lot of diversity and it's especially different or weird, if you will, uh, just call it that. Yeah, just the lemurs alone there are so, so yes. cool. I'd love to see that before yeah, I die. Totally. Um, so where are your favorite places that you have gotten to go uh, for research? Um, so I guess like uh, Galapagos is where I do most of my work and uh, it's still one of my favorite places to go. Um, part of it is that it's really well protected. Most of the land area is actually national park. And so they're doing a really great job at limiting uh, the impact of humans that they have on the biota. And so like when you go there, the animals are uh, like, they just come to you. So it's really fun. Um, I see a lot of tourists, for example, while we work that are in the field and they bring these huge cameras. And then when they are there, they realize like these big lenses are actually useless because like the animals come so close to you. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's great because if I give you an example, like when we were in the field and I work mostly on land snails, 
and they're they're really cool too, uh, but they're not necessarily uh, what people know the Galapagos for. But we'd be in the field and you work and you're just looking for snails or whatever or whatnot, and and you have birds coming and sitting on your head, pulling on your hair. Uh, the giant tortoises would just walk through your field camp and just destroy everything, which is not as fun, but you know, like they're just not scared of humans. And so that makes it for a very special experience to work there. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so if you are approached by a wild animal, what would you suggest that you do? Uh, like in Galapagos specifically or? Or anywhere. Just generally anywhere. speaking, you're in a situation where there are wild animals that for whatever reason aren't afraid of you and one comes up to you, what do you do? Well, it totally depends on the animal, I guess, oh, right? Sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the, on the, the size. Like, and... Get the heck out of there, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But generally, I think like what I, I try to do is uh, make myself uh, like as much as I can as part of the environment where I am and not stand out as this sort of human being who's like with its technology and, you know, like not, not fitting in. But like um, take my time, be quiet, listen and observe. And then uh, depending on the reaction that you can observe, if the animal seems like afraid or not, then like maybe like if it's afraid, like maybe step back. But if you see that like it's not, then you can approach uh, the animal and so on and, and try to have like some sort of an interaction uh, with the biodiversity. And I think like this is an opportunity that like oftentimes we go for hikes, we go for uh, walks uh, and, and we're experiencing the world around us but we're not really interacting with it. And so if I'm given an opportunity to interact with the biodiversity surrounding us, like I, I, I take it for sure. Like I don't run away. Awesome. Um, someone like, would like to know, uh, what are some things that we can do to help, help protect biodiversity in our backyards? That's a very good question. So uh, there's, I know that there's a lot of community groups that have uh, lists of plants that are endemic or native in the area. And so when you look at biodiversity, you have always species um, that are from the area where you're at. And so those are called endemic or native. And you have the invasive or the introduced species. So those are species that have been brought to that area by, uh, by humans. And so that could be by accident or voluntarily. But nowadays what we wanna do, we realize that like these introduced species maybe uh, have been interfering with the communities, the local communities, and so we want to minimize that impact. So in our gardens, we can actually select plants or in our back backyards, we can select plants that are from the area where we are at. And so by planting and favoring these uh, plants and these species, what we're doing is uh, recreating or trying to uh, at least uh, favor the environment and the, the ecosystem as it used to be. And so that have been, has been shown to actually attract also more birds, more insects, more diversity on its own. So by trying to um, favor, yeah, plants that are either native or endemic, uh, I think that's a, already a big step that we can do, everyone can do uh, in their own backyard. Awesome. So once you've created a little biodiversity in your backyard, what are the best ways to document um, while surveying biodiversity in your yard? Like how best could we do that? Uh, there's various ways you can do this, and it depends on in your interest, and I'm all for people following their own interests. Biodiversity is so huge, right? Like, there's so many things that you could do. Uh, so if someone really likes birds, for example, uh, they could just uh, monitor birds and get, again, 
into these uh, citizen science programs that are great where you can do bird counts or record behavioral information about uh, the birds that are coming on your, in your yard. And so I was actually in a meeting this morning, um, a research meeting, and we, we, this came up where how like there, it's amazing the amount of data and the quality of data that is collected that way from individuals in their backyard, just making simple observations. And so um, there's definitely places online where you can, and I don't, off the top of my head, don't know the names of these uh, different um, uh, programs, but, but where you can actually contribute data to uh, the scientific community by just doing simple observation in your backyard. Now, if you want to observe for yourself and then necessarily share that information, I'd say like go low and go small. And so like the big stuff is like obviously cool, you know, if you have like big birds coming to your, in your yard and so on. But if you start looking at the small things, like you, you'll be amazed because like there's so much more diversity in the world of invertebrates. If you include insects and then like, you, like all the, all the invertebrates, terrestrial invertebrates that you can find in your backyard, uh, you'll get blown away really quickly. And so that you can just use Tupperware plastic containers and then just put some soil, collect some stuff, observe them, release them, and so on. Awesome. Um, iNaturalist is also really useful. Um, I have yes, a that's another citizen science. Uh, yeah, and then oftentimes invertebrates are not very well recorded in the uh, on that app because most people are like taking pictures of mammals reptiles and birds but not so much of insects and so on totally yeah i take a lot of pictures of bugs yeah that's <laughs> awesome um uh, how would endangerment and extinction affect biodiversity well yeah so when you have extinction what you're you're basically losing uh like a species, right? And so like by, and then, so you're dropping your number of species, which is oftentimes the metric or the measure we use to quantify biodiversity, it's just a straight number of species. But another consequence or indirect consequence of that is when you lose a species, you're also highly likely to lose other species that are associated with that one. And so there's oftentimes this snowball effect that by losing a, a single species, you might be getting uh, started like on a downhill slope where you're, you might be losing more and more. And so uh, extinction is definitely something that we're concerned about. Um, but I think it, it's interesting because I'd say when I was starting grad school, and I don't know how, you, how old you are, Sarah, but uh, so basically that brings me back like maybe like almost 20 years ago. So, uh, so when I was starting, oh, like that would be like, would be more like undergrad. But anyways, so like if you go back 20 years ago, the discussions were about extinctions were more about how can we prevent extinction altogether, right? And now like it has shifted. We know it's happening and we know we can't prevent them all. And so the discussion nowadays is much more which species should we try to save? Which ones do we have a chance to save? And this, this, there is this triage uh, process that is going on. And, and it, it makes me really sad when I think about it because like we, we reach a point where we know we're not gonna be able to save them all. And the, the question is more like, which one can we save and which one should we save? Yeah. Yeah. Depressing. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> so if you have an animal that's endangered and you've decided that it's important to try to save it, um, how can you do that? 
So as a scientist, the first thing we want to do is collect information. So we, we need information about where that species is found and uh, like it, like, so it's distribution in terms of like how much of a geographical area it covers, but also its population size. And so that's important. But then the second, I think most important thing would be to have a record of change over time. And so some species are rare and always have been rare. And so maybe like spending some energy and trying to make it, their habitat better is useless because they are just rare species. And other spe but other species we know have been declining. And so identifying the species that are on decline, I think would be like a very important first step uh, to prevent extinction, to basically reverse the course of these populational trends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have a question that's just, what is biodiversity? So how would you like, is it just the number of species that you have in an area or the number of species and the depth of each species? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So biodiversity is, uh, is to me at least a concept that in, like it's a contraction of two words, right? Biological diversity. And so biological is anything that's living, right? And then diversity uh, is not only species number, but also uh, the, the differences in morphologies that you might see in different organisms, the different function these organisms perform in their environment. And there's also genetic diversity. And so we, we nowadays take into account how closely related the species are and how distantly related they are. So the more distantly related the species are, we consider that they are actually, that community would have more diversity because it has more historical diversity. It encompasses uh, species that have been, that have split further along, further, um, a longer time ago. And so that, that basically tells us that like this community would have representative of like a wider range of the history of diversity, but also uh, the current diversity. Um, so other than climate change, what things affect biodiversity negatively as well as positively? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, okay, so there's various things uh, or factors that have been identified as uh, being related to high species diversity. And so the most, I'd say, commonly agreed upon factor is simply area. So if you have a bigger area, uh, you're more likely to have more species in that area. So that de definitely is a, is a factor. Then the other fact, one, uh, another factor uh, that is coming to play is how old that area is. And so if you look, for example, at the global scale and you're near the poles, so if you're, for example, somewhere in Canada, uh, that part of that area was covered uh, or was under an ice sheet not too long ago. And so while that ice sheet receded, basically it uh, exposed this, uh, this habitat that was then colonized by species. But that happened really recently. And so that area has not had as much time to accumulate species diversity. So time basically is another uh, uh, factor that might come into play. <clears throat> and then there's... Um, diversity in elevation or I guess like elevation per se so like if you go up if you have um like an area where you have a mountain and like you, you 
for a given area, you're going to have way more diversity than like if you have an area that's completely flat. So that topographic or that change in elevation allows for uh, ecological diversity that would not be possible if everything is on the same level and uh, basically experiencing the same abiotic condition. So if you're at the same temperature, same humidity and so on, you're going to have a certain range of species that, that can handle that. But if you go, if you have an area where you have a lot of that elevational changes, then you'll have the ones that are really good in the hot environment, the ones that are a bit better, like in the middle and so on. So every layer will bring in a different set of species. Very cool. Um, so what advice would you have for young scientists who wanna have a job like yours in the future? Oh, um, I would say, well, that's hard to, me so like so I got to where I am by just following and doing what I liked so I felt that um well so I, I you need to study right like if you, depending where you are at like right like you so you're gonna go like through a high school and then undergrad studies and then you'll do some more grad school and then like some more uh, uh, probably a postdoctoral fellowship at some point or training and then you'll start applying for a job. So like, it's a long process. So one, you have to be patient. <laughs> and, and I think it's important to really like what you're doing as you go. Um, because like, there's not a lot of jobs in biodiversity. It's kind of sad, but like, that's how it is. And so, um, but to me, like when I was going through this, I enjoyed myself so much that in the worst case, I was like, well, even if I don't have a job, like I'm having a lot of fun right now. And so I'll find something else to do, like if that doesn't pan out. So I think finding your passion and finding like some questions that you're really interested in and trying to um, go after those questions is what is going to keep you going and be successful. Sounds good. Um, so why is biodiversity so important and worthy of protection? Yeah, so uh, there's, that is also highly debated, right? Like why, why do we need so many species? Like why do we care and like why don't we just let them like go extinct, right? And so, um, well, yeah, so there's different opinions uh, about that. And so there is one view uh, that is more utilitarian view, I guess, where people um, see a benefit to biodiversity because um, there's a lot of things that we haven't discovered uh, that might be useful in the future. So for example, there's a lot of work that's being done right now, um, exploring and discovering invertebrates that are at the bottom of the ocean. And so this is an area that we know very, very little. So uh, for example, you were asking what uh, young people should do and think about, like so, that's a field of biodiversity that is completely open. We barely know anything about like the diversity at the bottom of the ocean. But so yeah, so we're discovering what these species are and what their particular functions are. And, and what we're discovering is that some of those produce, have produce um, molecules that could potentially be used for um, biomedicine. And so, um, so if we don't care and that we don't protect these species because we're like, eh, they're not really useful right now, uh, we, might we might lose the potential that these species might offer in the future. So that's one view. Another view is that we should protect 
biodiversity because it's not on us to decide what should live or not, right? What should go extinct or not. And so there's the, a view that we should do our best um, to protect everything that is surround, surrounding us because uh, it's part, we're part of this environment and um, it'd be selfish to disregard uh, that responsibility. And so there's that view as well. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot still to be learned about biodiversity and we're, we're losing species at the rate that like right now faster than we can actually name the new species that we're discovering, which uh, is pretty sad. And so like, I think uh, there's some value, not just like philosophically, but also like for the potential that this diversity might offer in the future. Cool. Um, so what can we do to protect uh, species around the world, not only in our backyards? Uh, well, there's a lot of, if you want to have like more uh, an impact on a global scale, uh, you can look uh, into some conservation agencies and uh, there's, depending your level of interest and commitment, uh, I mean, they, they will always take donations, um, but you could also look for volunteering positions. Uh, they have like, at, and, and sometimes it's like at the community level, but they also have programs where you can travel and uh, do like some sort of internship and help out, uh, especially if you have skills that they might be interested. Um, but I know, for example, some of friends of mine were in this volunteering program where they went uh, in the tropical areas and they were planting trees, for example. And so then you have to pay for your own ticket, but then like all your expenses are, are paid for, for example, once you reach uh, the area, the location. So there's various, there's tons of programs out there uh, where they seek volunteers uh, or the help of the communities at the local scale or the global scale. Or if you just don't want to get dirty, you can just, yeah, give them money. <laughs> That's always useful. <laughs> For sure. Um, so let's see, are there any habitats on earth that are safe from human impact? No, I don't think so. Unfortunately, I think some are definitely more uh, exposed but um, I think what we'll find more likely is that even in the places uh, that are not really accessed by humans, for example, deep in the ocean or like way up like in the, the North Pole or South Pole, um, that even if we don't set foot there because of our, what we're doing at a local or where we are, this has indirect effects uh, everywhere on the planet. I, I just can't imagine that there's nowhere on this planet where we have zero impact. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, even when we go to the deepest parts of the ocean, there are like mylar balloons down there. It's yeah, awesome. exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, well, Krishna would like to know, uh, what's the consequence of losing biodiversity in the foods that we grow and eat? Like for example, there's only a handful of banana species that we still grow. Yeah, so that has the potential of, um, like it exposes us to the potential of like getting some food completely wiped out, right? So like if, if for example, the bananas is a great example. Um, there's one uh, strain of banana that basically took over the whole market because it travels really well. So uh, people that were in the countries where they grow the, the bananas, they can pack them up and like ship them and like the banana arrive in uh, our grocery stores and they're fine. But 
Um, the problem with that is if there is an outbreak and we are getting to learn more and more about outbreaks. So if bananas get exposed to some fungus or some like disease uh, that attacks the plant, then there's no genetic diversity. We don't have that diversity that would allow us or allows the bananas to like make it through those outbreaks and survive on the market. And so by having these monoculture or like these very specific um, strains of food that we're growing in really large quantity without diversity, we're putting ourselves at risk uh, for problems like that. For sure. Um, next question. Do you know of any cool ways to make cities greener and safer for animals? Oh, for animals. So like I, I, okay. Yeah. So I, again, like this is stuff I know off the top of my head and like just not necessarily know if scientifically it helps, but uh, I really like the ideas of the green roofs. I think that's, uh, that's a great idea. Um, it basically, if you look uh, from a satellite imaging perspective at the cities, what you see is basically all the concrete is all gray. And so if we can bring some of the green back in these areas and it's kind of, it's kind of too late to add parks. It's hard to add parks in uh, urban areas that are really dense, but using the rooftops, I think is a great idea and a great way to do that. And not only does that potentially benefit um, the flying organism, like so it'd be like the birds and the insects and so on, it also has this cooling effect uh, in the, the city as well. So that helps also in terms of the temperature uh, in the urban areas. So I really like all, the vertical gardens and the rooftop gardens, I think those are great initiatives for sure. Awesome. Um, there's also these, so for making cities safer, like in terms of highways, they, they're, um, I think it's Georgia, but I'm not sure, is putting up a lot of these like ways for um, animals to get across the road without yeah. getting hit. And so as they're planning for things, you can either have a burrow that goes under the highway or like a little ramp that goes over the highway. And I think they're putting the over the highway ramps in, um, in some highways in Georgia because it's dangerous for people and animals because if you get whacked by a deer, it's like yeah, exactly. it's for everybody. Exactly. Um, yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> don't want that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's another way to do that. Uh, may not be like cool or hip, but it's helpful. Um, yeah, anything that basically helps, uh, like creates these corridors. And so that's what we call them. Like, so, so even if you think about like the urban planning in a, in a city, instead of randomly peppering your city with parks, if you can actually think about like how our organism are moving across the landscape and design like the placement of your parks in, a, in such a way that will allow for that movement to still happen would definitely be super beneficial. Totally. Um, so why are we currently losing so many species compared to before? Oh. <laughs> So many reasons, but um, mainly us, basically, like it all comes back to humans. But um, so again, this is not my range of expertise, so I don't actually know like which one are the most important, but um, habitat destruction uh, by humans is a, a huge problem. Uh, then there's also uh, directly, we might be killing some animals or overfishing and so on. And so like we're driving some species extinct just by exploitation, by us going out and using these animals. But my sense uh, is that habitat destruction is probably the most um, important factor 
um, at least like on the islands I work on, um, when we look at the different species that we're monitoring, oftentimes it's not that the species are threatened because the humans are going to go and get them or not even that like we've introduced other invasive species that might actually interfere with them. It's mostly because the habitat gets completely changed in certain areas. And then once the habitat is changed, the chances that to, to recover that uh, diversity of species is, is really slim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's depressing. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you have a favorite animal? Uh, yes, uh, my favorite animal. Well, so I like snails, but like the snails are the, the, are, are the group of uh, animals or organisms I mostly work with. And when I started working with them, it was uh, mostly out of convenience. So they, as a biologist, I, I wanted a system or a group of animals where um, they would be easy to catch. And so snails are easy, like, I don't, like way easier than birds, for example. Uh, and I wanted a system where there was a lot of them, a lot of diversity, um, and so a lot of species, basically, so that like, uh, because a lot of this, the, the question I'm trying to answer have to do with the formation of these species. So if you have only one or a few, it's kind of hard to study, but if you have a lot, then you can study that process over and over again. So that's how I kind of went and like started studying the land snails. Uh, now I actually like them. Like at first I was like, hey, like, you know, it's convenient, but, but now I think they're the cutest. Um, but then other than that, uh, my favorite is uh, the red panda. Oh, red pandas are so yeah, cute. Just, uh, like, yeah, um, so, I think snails are cute too. I, you know, yeah. they're silly little. Eyes. It's cute. I yeah. think snails are cute. Although I, am the, 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 I guess like another one, like yeah, I guess like I like a, I like a lot of organisms, but like um, the sea slugs are also super cool in terms of coolness. The sea slugs, I think, read them all. Yeah, totally couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, so here's a question about the cost of biodiversity. So I mean, we could talk about the the cost of losing, like the, the, yeah, overtime cost of losing an animal versus the current cost of saving it. So how do those two kind of stack up against each other? Yeah, that is uh, a one head a scratcher. I don't think, like, that's what people like devote their career to, right? Like to try to figure, answer that question, right? Like, because nobody has a crystal ball and like, we can't really know what's going to happen in the future. And, and so it's hard to evaluate. So, so what is really hard is the part of the equation that is put a, um, a dollar sign on the worth of the species, right? Because we know maybe what it, we can do with it now and how important it is, for example, in an ecosystem and keeping that ecosystem in place. So some species are like what we call the keystone species, you know, that are really key in keeping everything functioning in an ecosystem. So we can more or less put like a value on that, but the future value is really hard uh, to come up with. And so we can figure out the, the cost of protection. So that's pretty, that's fairly easy to come up with, but it's the other part of the equation that is what are we getting um, like in return, basically, like what's the value of that? And there's a social value. There's a more of a philosophical value, as we said, there's the future utility of the species. All of those are big question marks. So that makes it really hard for people who are in charge of this, these decisions. What species are we going to protect? What species are we just going to let go because we can't protect them all? Like it's, yeah, I, I, I'm glad I'm not in that position because that must be really hard. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so when you go out, going out into the field and you're looking for the snails, how can you find them and where are they hanging out? Okay, so the snails are the coolest. I was just waiting for you to ask me. <laughs> just kidding. So like the, the snails, um, well, so the, the ones I study, they're very, um, like, they're very small. They're, you know, like, uh, I probably can't see that, but like, they're about like um, a half an inch in length, um, at, at most one inch. And they're, um, they're cryptic. They kind of hide under logs and underground and there are snails. And so they, they sort of, they spend most of their time estivating, which means that like they're hidden in their shell and they're just waiting for conditions to be good to come out. And so that means um, that a lot of people overlook them. Like they, and that's why when I, Galapagos is sort of like well-known, right? Like the, the finches have been studied a lot, the tortoises. And so when I was trying to find a good island system to study, I sort of had to look at other options. And then this option jumped to me because nobody had studied them, most likely because they're not that obvious to find. Uh, but generally, if we step out of Galapagos and you're in your own backyard and you want to find snails, they like humid habitats. And so if you um, go for a hike or you're in the garden and you see logs or even pieces of cardboard, uh, anything that's on the ground where humidity can accumulate, if you flip those, there's a good chance that you're going to find snails and all sorts of other critters as well. Uh, they're also sometimes hidden like under uh, the bark. So if you have the tree like between the bark and the trunk, oftentimes they, they can kind of like hide in these little crevices. Uh, but yeah, in general, like everywhere where it's kind of more wet and um, yeah, humid, they like that. Awesome. Um, so what is your favorite part of your job and your least favorite part of your job? Uh, my favorite part of my job is to take uh, students in the field. That's like uh, the best because I've been working um, uh, and doing field work for over 20 years and I'm still amazed, like I still enjoy it a lot, but it's so much better if I have someone who's new to it uh, with me, uh, just seeing how it's like reliving that experience, this amazement of like discovering all these things for the first time. So I get to do this every year. Basically, I have a new crew of students and, and that part is just, um, this is what it keeps me going, basically, why I love my job. Um, now, the part I like the least, I think, is all, so as a faculty, so I teach and I, um, I do research and uh, I do admin, administrative work. And so all of those I like, but the part I like the least is uh, when I come back from the field or even when we're um, like doing some work in the lab is all the financial stuff. <laughs> so I really dislike that. And so we end up like, and those are complicated. Um, it ends up like being these huge folders of receipts and like of expenses and we have to keep track of every single expense for every single person in the team. And yeah, dealing with that, like I just, yeah, I really, I just like that. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I wish I had like my own financial assistant to deal with that. You know? Same, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So last question from the audience. Um, what policies do you wish would get passed to help protect biodiversity? Oh, 
I am not on the top of my game in terms of like current policies that are uh, like debated or not. Uh, but more generally, let me think, this is a good question. Um, yeah, that is a good question. If you don't know, that's like perfectly okay. We can't know everything. Yeah. Uh, if we have a but depth of knowledge, think, that's one thing. Yeah, so I think like any like anything that would protect a space, I think uh, I would be all for that. Like more so than a specific species. Anything that would protect and like their original condition of like a big chunk of land, mm -hmm. I think I would be like in favor. Yeah. Great answer. Okay, so we try to keep these to right about 45 minutes. And so yeah. we always end with the same two questions for everybody. The first question is, uh, what do you wish that everybody knew related to your field of work? And then the second question on the flip side is, what do you wish everybody knew about literally anything? It can be as silly or significant as you want. No judgment. Oh my God. Hmm. See, that tells you that like I'm a newbie at this because like if you <laughs> no, everybody responds to these questions the same way like oh no so I should like warn you guys probably but I like to see yeah. what you come up with on the spot yeah totally okay so what uh I wish that everyone knew about my job is that the, that's the first one right um okay um well so specifically about my job um I, I guess like a lot of people think I'm a snail biologist and I am not, I am like a biodiversity evolutionary biologist. And so like, I don't like when people come to me up to me and ask me and, or like just assume that like, I wouldn't know every single possible little fact about land snails. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, so I, I'm more like an evol evolutionary biologist. So I know more about that than mm -hmm. um, yeah, snails per se. Um, but then, and then the, the next question is like, like the, everyone should know, period. Thing that you think everybody should know. <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. Um, okay, do I have a minute to think about this? You can, have, you can take a minute, you can take a beat. <laughs> sure. Um, this is really hard. What about you? What is your answer to this? It would, it would probably change based on the day. <laughs> Um, geez, I don't know. I guess I, I would want everybody to know that um, whatever problem you see in the world, like you can fix it or you can at least make it better. Like even if the problem is huge, like you are probably equipped to fix something. And so even if it's not like climate change, like maybe it's some small part to make things better and if we all try a little bit at the things that we have the skills for overall everybody's gonna be better that's a good answer okay uh, so um i guess um i would like everyone to know that we will never know everything and so that like uh, even if i give you an answer now uh as you just said i guess like it, these answers are dynamic and changing even when it's when we think about science so what we know or what I teach right now in my classes, um, like these are facts that are probably going to change a bit and some of them like maybe a lot. And I see it because I teach things that like I did not learn or were completely opposite of what I learned uh, when I was in school. So yeah, things are dynamics and yeah, there's no such thing as a solid fact in biology. 
So good. That's perfect. That's good. That's great. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. This was wonderful. Tammy, thank you for signing. Uh, we really appreciate all your whole group for helping us uh, with all of this. Um, we are starting already in 15 minutes. We're going to be talking uh, with the folks at Earth Day Network all about uh, what we can do and what's going on with Earth Day this year. It's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which is why we're all jazzed about this stuff today. Um, Earth Day is a, a week from today. Um, as always, we are a nonprofit that's totally dependent on donors to support us. And so if you appreciate what we're doing and you can support us, please do at patreon.com slash Skype the Scientist or paypal.me slash Skype a Scientist. All of your donations are tax deductible. Um, and we really, the more we can support, the better because we can have more people working on this. So, uh, all right. Thank you again, Tammy and Christine. And we'll see all the rest of you soon. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.